Well, hey, welcome to First Church Live. So glad you guys are worshiping with us. And we have family all over the 918, all over this country worshiping with us right now. So if you guys here in North Garnett Wood, would you put your hands together and welcome in our online family. My name's Chad, and like I said, we're so glad that you're worshiping with us today. Well, growing up in my family, we always had these around my house. Some of you guys probably recognize this. This is what is commonly called a mason jar, and we had these in our house a lot, and they're used for different purposes. It's named after a John L. Mason. He invented this in 1858, and the original purpose for a mason jar was to can food, and so... A wonderful lady in our church brought me some samples because she cans food. So we got some beans here and I think some beets, that's what that looks like, some tomatoes and even some jam. And I'm going to hang on to this one. She can have the rest of them back, but I'm going to hang on to the peach plum jam there. But anyway, I remember seeing this in my grandparents' house, canned food. And food will last in one of these mason jars when it's sealed properly, I mean forever, for years and years. And so maybe you've seen this, maybe you've had this around your house, maybe you've even canned food yourself. I remember the last church I served, I went and visited an elderly couple one time in their home and this guy had four different closets full of canned food and he said if there's ever a shortage on food come to my house I've got plenty and I remember I laughed at him thinking this guy's kind of paranoid and then this whole pandemic happened I thought maybe he's on to something maybe he knew something was coming I don't know you can also use a mason jar for other reasons like I've seen people around here especially use them to drink out of so you can pour your tea in there and you can, have them for a, you can have one for a drinking glass, and so you can enjoy your sweet tea. Very, it looks very southern when you drink out of one of these, right? So that's pretty cool. People also use them just for decorations, put flowers in them or marbles and all, all sorts of stuff, really. But my favorite use of a mason jar, for a mason jar, when I was a kid was collecting lightning bugs. I don't know if you ever did this, but we used to put holes in the top of a mason jar lid, and we'd go out at night, and we would collect lightning bugs, and we would put them in there, and then we'd seal it up tight and just watch them glow, you know, at night. And it was always so cool. I loved doing this as a kid. And a few weeks ago, my family got to go to Kentucky, and so I took Alex, my six-year-old, out to go hunt lightning bugs. You guys call them lightning bugs or fireflies? I'm not sure. Lightning bugs, is that right? I don't know. If you're, if you're a godly person, it's a lightning bug. If not, it's a firefly. But anyway, we went out, we collected lightning bugs, and we put them in a jar, and he was just so fascinated. He thought it was awesome. So that night, we put him on the bed, gave him a bath, put him to bed, put Addie, our daughter, to bed, and we left this jar of lightning bugs in the room where Alice and I were sleeping in my in-law's house. And I thought, you know, I probably need to take those outside because if we leave them there overnight, they might die or whatever. So I need to let them go. But Alice and I were watching a movie while we were laying in bed. And I thought, I'll watch a little bit more of the movie and then I'll go do it. So a few more minutes passed and I saw those lightning bugs sitting up on the dresser. You know, they're just glowing in the dark. And I thought, you know, I really need to go take those lightning bugs out, let them go. I'll do it here in a minute. Well, Allison fell asleep and I saw her asleep. And I thought, you know, now's the time. I could hit pause in the movie movie, and I can go take those bugs out, and then I fell asleep and never did it. And so, in the middle of the night, you know, a few hours past, middle of the night, all of a sudden I get this nudge, and it's Allison, and she goes, Chad, the lighting bugs are in our room. And I'm like, oh yeah, I forgot to take them out, my bad. She said, no, 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 they're like loose in our room. Apparently the holes that we had made were too big on the top of the lid, and they had gotten out. And so I opened my eyes in this dark room, and there's these lighting bugs flying all around our room. And I turned to Allison, and I said, you know, it's kind of romantic, isn't it? She didn't think so. She didn't think so at all. She was like, get the bugs out of the room. And you know, I had the best of intentions to get those bugs, to take those bugs out, and I fell asleep and didn't do it. And in the middle of the night when I'm trying to catch these lighting bugs, 
my good intentions didn't mean a whole lot. You know, we've been in a series right now called Accidental Faith, and we've been talking about how faith isn't something that happens by accident. If you want to live by faith, you've got to be intentional about it. And one saying that we've been using over and over again is this, good intentions are not a substitute for being intentional. It's not just a saying, it's a truth that I think we should live by. Good intentions are not a substitute for intentional living, for being intentional. There's a big difference. Because a lot of times what we say we want to do is not always what we do. What we know we need to do is not always what we do. In fact, you could describe it like this. We're people who have great intentions, but our intentions don't always translate to actions. And so what we end up doing, a lot of our lives, is living in this space between, living in this gap in the middle, where we have these great intentions, but we stay in this gap, and our intentions never translate into action. So we have these great intentions about how we're going to live and what we're going to do in life or what type of friends we're going to have and make and keep or who we're going to marry or what type of kids we're going to raise, what type of family we're going to have. We have these intentions about what we're going to do with our money and what type of stuff we're going to get. We have these intentions even about our faith. But the problem is, even though we have all these great intentions, we just kind of get stuck right here. And we never actually move to action. We know we need to, but for some reason, we just get stuck in that gap in between, that space in the middle. And companies and businesses have learned that we as human beings have this tendency. In fact, a lot of companies who try to sell us products now have moved away from survey-based research and they move to more, well, behavior-based research. In other words, they don't ask people anymore what they want because they know people will say they want a whole bunch of stuff, but that doesn't mean they're just going to buy it. What they do is they base their product line on what they see people actually buying. A good example of this, a friend of mine was telling the story the other day, and I'd forgotten about it, but back in the 1990s, McDonald's, they asked their customers what they wanted on their menu, and the large majority of their customers said they wanted a healthy sandwich option on their menu. And so in the early 90s, McDonald's came out with the McLean Deluxe. Now, when I was talking about this in the office this week, my assistant said that wasn't a real thing. McDonald's didn't really do that, did they? I was like, no, they actually did. They had it out for a few years. It was made with like seaweed or something like that, but it's supposed to taste just like a hamburger. It's supposed to be a more healthy option. And let me just see, how many of you guys either remember or actually tried a McLean sandwich? Anybody in the room? Okay, I see a few hands, and there's just a few. You know why? It was a McFlop, okay? It didn't work. It didn't pan out. It was a big McFailure, if you want to put it that way. It was just on the menu for a few years. You know why? Because even though people said they wanted a healthy sandwich option, when they went up to order... They still ordered the Big Mac and large fries. They still ordered the quarter pound of a cheese. Somebody said amen over there. I heard it. I know. I heard it. <laughs> because we may say we want something, but that doesn't mean that we're actually going to follow through with it. We may know we need something, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're going to follow through with it. And that's true about a lot of stuff in life, but it's especially true when it comes to our faith. I mean, we're people who are well-intentioned when it comes to our faith. We want to grow deeper in our relationship with Jesus. We want to follow him on a more intimate level all the time. But a lot of times we live in that gap in between having good spiritual intentions and actually being the people that God is calling us to be. That's true also for the mission of our church. We believe that the church exists on earth 
to unleash the joy of heaven on the sadness of earth. That's why the church is here. And as First Church, we believe we are here in this location to unleash a revolution of God's love on the 918 and beyond. We believe that by loving Jesus and loving like Jesus, we can literally change people's lives for the better. We can change people's eternity. But in order for that to happen, it's not going to happen by accident. We've got to be intentional about living out our mission. And that's why for the past three weeks, we've been looking at the life of a guy named Josiah. Josiah was king of Judah, king over God's people. And we're studying his life because he lived for God on purpose. He lived an intentional life for God. And Josiah became king at a young age when God's kingdom, his people, they were a mess. Because the two kings prior to Josiah, his grandfather and father, they were immoral men who didn't do right in the eyes of God, led the people away from God, brought in all these evil, wicked, immoral practices. And the kingdom was an absolute wreck, an absolute mess. And Josiah, when he becomes king, could have followed in the footsteps of his father and grandfather. He could have just kept the cycle going. He could have led just as they had been leading. But instead, he decided to change course. He decided to take a different path. The Bible says he decided to do what was right in God's eyes, and he did not turn from the right to the right or to the left of that. He stayed focused on being the man that God wanted him to be. And because of that, the Bible says this about Josiah. It says, neither before nor after Josiah was there a king like him who turned to the Lord as he did with all of his heart, with all of his soul, and with all of his strength. Now, here's the thing. The Bible says there was never a king like Josiah before or after him who turned to God with all of his heart, soul, and strength like he did. Guys, that doesn't happen by accident. You've got to be intentional about following God if you want that reputation. If you want to be a man after God's own heart like that. And that was Josiah. That was the reputation he had. And honestly, I think that that same intentional living should mark our lives as well. That should be the goal of our lives. That should be the reputation we should want to have, both as individuals and as a church. That type of intentional living should mark our lives as well. And so let me ask, does it? You know, as we wrap up this series, I want to ask you this question. Is your life defined by your intentional pursuit of God? Is that what defines your life, your existence, your intentional pursuit of God? Is that what you're known for? Because that's what Josiah was known for. This week I was meeting with our lead staff team in the office and we were talking about some stuff going on and there's four of us on that team and so we're planning and trying to figure some stuff out when all of a sudden I get a text message from a buddy of mine in church, he's in my small group and he said, Chad, did you send me an email? And I said, no, I did not send you an email. I thought that was kind of odd. Then I got another text message from one of our elders. And this elder said, Chad, did you send me an email? And I was like, no, nope, didn't send you an email either. About that time, Matt Thomason, who's on our lead team, was like, hey, I just got a text message. Somebody sent, you, sent them a weird email from you. And so then we started to get other messages and phone calls. And some of you guys are laughing right now because you know what happened. We had a scammer who made up a phony email account in my name and sent out requests of people in our church. And maybe you got one of those emails. If 
you didn't get one of those emails, you probably saw the later email that my assistant sent out saying, Chad did not send out an email this morning, so disregard anything you got this morning from him. It was just a scammer, and the end result, if you responded to his email, he was trying to get you to send virtual gift cards uh, to help out cancer victims, which is really sad that he would use that excuse to try to just, you know, deceive people out of money or whatever. Really sad, but anyway, we caught it, and by the way, just as a warning, if you ever get an email from any of our staff members that does not have the at firstchurchok.com domain on the end of it, do not accept it from us, okay? This guy had a Gmail account. It was like, Chad brought us firstchurch at gmail.com. So that's, that's a phony. It's a fake, okay? So just be aware of that. It's got to have the at firstchurchok.com. Just want to clarify. But one of the elders who received this message sent me a screenshot of what it said. And this is what this one said. I think there were other versions of it. But it's entitled Blessings, which doesn't sound like me at all. But anyway, it says, hello, how are you? I need an assistance from you. Please let me know if you get this. Peace. By the way, if you ever get an email from me and I sign it, peace, it's not me, okay? Just want to let you know. But what was interesting was I heard this, and look at this, they even ripped off our First Church logo. They put that on there as well. But what was interesting was I had a bunch of people, including this elder, who said, I knew right away it wasn't you. You know why? Because you use better grammar than that. They knew right away that wasn't me. That was some foreign hacker somewhere, okay? That wasn't me because my grammar is not that bad. And honestly, being from Kentucky, I took that as a huge compliment. The more people said that to me, I was like, that's awesome. All these college degrees have paid off, okay? That's great that that's my reputation now. And you know, it's good finding out that you have a reputation that you actually want to have. It's good when you find out that you're known for something that you want to be known for. And so when it comes to your spiritual life, are you known by others for being intentional about your faith? If somebody said, hey, name somebody who lives for God on purpose. Hey, they're not perfect, but they live for God on purpose. Would your face come to mind? Would your name come to mind? Is that what you're known for? Because that's what Josiah was known for, not just in his day and age, but for thousands of years after. He was known for being a man who was focused on God, who lived for God on purpose. And that's why we're looking at his example today, because I think we can learn a lot from him. And as we wrap up this series and we look at Josiah one more time, look at the end of this reform movement that he led in the kingdom of Judah, I think we're going to learn one more truth that is so important if we want to live for God intentionally, and it's this. You can't move from inaction to action without first taking responsibility for your inaction. So you can't move out of that gap that exists between intention, good intentions and action unless you realize why you're living in that gap, unless you own and take responsibility for your inaction. So last week we left off in the story of Josiah, and Josiah had just had God's word read to him for the very first time. Remember, the book of God's law had been lost. It had been lost for generations. We don't know how long, but they found it in the temple. They bring it to King Josiah. They read it to him. Josiah tears his robes because he is so distraught because he realizes just how far he is from God and how far the kingdom has gone from God. And so Josiah is remorseful, and here's what he does. He's not just personally convicted by hearing God's word. He takes his conviction public. He asks all the men of Judah to inquire of God on behalf of him, to pray to God for him, and then he does this. Look at what the Bible says. It says, Josiah went up to the temple, uh, to the temple of the Lord with the, the men of Judah, the people of Jerusalem, the priests and the prophets, all the people from the least to the greatest. He read in their hearing all the words of the book of the covenant which had been found in the temple of the Lord. 
The king stood by the pillar and renewed the covenant in the presence of the Lord to follow the Lord and to keep his commands, regulations, and decrees with all of his heart and with all of his soul, thus confirming the words of the covenant written in this book. So did you catch what Josiah does? Not only does he ask the people to pray for him, he then goes to the temple of God, invites all the people of the land to come with him, all the citizens of the kingdom to come with him, and there he publicly reads before them the book of God's law, and he, before all of them, confesses his sin and renews his covenant before God publicly before all of them. Why does he do that? Because here's the thing, when you want to live for God intentionally, God's going to ask you to do some tough stuff. It's hard at times, especially when you're living in a culture that's going the opposite direction of God. Josiah wants to make it public here, because when you make it public, it becomes more real. So it's not just he's just personally and privately convicted. He takes his conviction public, and he wants everyone to know He wants everyone to know about this God that he's now going to serve and about what God wants them to do as a people. And so I wonder today, if you're living in that gap between good intentions and action, I wonder if what you need to do as a first step to live intentionally for God is to take your faith public. Maybe you need to have that conversation with your coworkers. Tell them, hey, I'm living for Jesus, so I'm not going to do the stuff I used to do anymore. I'm not going to participate in some of the stuff I used to do anymore because, hey, I'm living for Jesus now. Maybe you need to have that conversation with your family. Hey, if we're going to be a household that God's ruling over and that God's at the center of, then we need to pray more together. We need to study God's word more together. We need to worship together more. We need to serve together more. We need to make our faith public as a family and hold one another accountable Maybe you need a friend to be an accountability partner. You need to go to somebody who you can trust, who's loyal to you, and say, hey, my life isn't right right now, and I need you to pray for me, and I need you to hold me accountable in this, even though it's going to be awkward, even though it's going to be embarrassing, even though I don't want to admit my own shortcomings, I need to go public with this. Maybe if you're dating somebody right now, and you've crossed some lines that God doesn't want you to cross, maybe you need to go public with them and say, hey, We're following Jesus. We can't do this anymore. We need to put up some barriers, some safeguards to make sure we don't cross those lines anymore. And we need to hold each other accountable. Maybe we even need to get another couple to hold us accountable as well. And if you've just started dating somebody, maybe you'd up front be honest with that person and say, hey, listen, I'm a follower of Jesus. You claim to be a follower of Jesus. We're going to set these boundaries right now. We're not going to go there. And we're going to make sure we don't go there. Just be open and honest about it. Maybe in your business practices or other relationships you may have, maybe you just need to be more open about your faith. Go public with it. Maybe you need to ask your small group to pray for you or to encourage you in some situation. I don't know. But if you're struggling to get out of that gap that exists between good intentions and actions, maybe you need to go public with your faith, with your convictions. That's what Josiah does. And he teaches us in this moment, if you've been living and the gap between good intentions and action, maybe it's time for you to go public with your intentions. And as he does, you know what happens? It's amazing. The people themselves are convicted. Look at what 2 Kings 23.3 says. Then all the people pledged themselves to the covenant. So Josiah goes public with his faith, and all the people are so moved by this 
that's the people of Judah. They want to renew the covenant with God as well. Now, I think there's a couple reasons why this happens. One, they're hearing the word of God for the first time in generations themselves, so they're convicted by hearing God's word. But also, I think, they're convicted by the example of their king. Kings in this day and age, they did not admit their weaknesses. Kings did not want to let anybody know they had done something wrong. Kings were worshipped as gods in most nations. And so for a king to humble himself in this way, to tear his robes and say, I have messed up and our nation has messed up and God, I'm turning back to you and God, you're going to be the leader of this nation, not me anymore. That probably moved the people to action. That inspired them. His example motivated them to want to know this God as well. I remember at the last church I served, I'd been there for only a few months. I was 22 years old as their lead preaching minister. I was right out of college, and I had a degree in Bible and preaching, so I knew everything. And so I walked into this church that had just been through a massive split that was hurting, that was broken. A lot of people told me not to even go to this church because of all of their troubles. But I went there, and after a few months, I'd been preaching. I'd been preaching about love and grace and forgiveness and all that stuff that the church needed to hear. But we weren't seeing a lot of action. Like, we weren't seeing a lot of results. And one Sunday, I'm, I'm preaching, and I get finished, and I'm not even done with the sermon yet. And this older gentleman, who was well-respected in the church, a patriarch of the church, everybody loved him, good moral man, always there every single Sunday, World War II veteran, I mean, just, you know, great guy, great citizen. He comes down front, and he says, Chad, I just want to let everybody know I need to rededicate my life to Jesus this morning. He said, I've been in church, I've been faithful to this church, but I have not been near as faithful to Jesus as I need to be. I haven't been living for his mission, I haven't been living for his cause, I haven't been a good example. And everybody's just looking like, what are you talking about? You're a great guy. But he felt as if he needed to confess this. And he said, this morning I want to publicly, before my church family, rededicate my life to following Jesus and serving him. You know what happened in that moment? Two other people that Sunday came forward and did the exact same thing. One other person came forward and was baptized for the first time into Christ. It was a big day because they hadn't had a decision in over a year because of all their problems. The next Sunday, three people baptized into Christ. The Sunday after that, more people came forward and rededicated their lives. We continue to have people come forward Sunday after Sunday for weeks afterwards. And I don't think that that older gentleman who came forward did that to get other people just to do it. But I think the example of a man like that, a patriarch of that church, humbling himself before the congregation, it moved people to do what they needed to do, to action. When we go public with our faith, people notice. And yeah, there may be some that make fun of you and give you a hard time, but you don't know what type of impact or influence you might have on somebody else who's just right on the verge of taking the step that God wants them to take. And so the people say, okay, Josiah, you're going to follow God. We are too. With all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, we're going to follow God too. And Josiah says, okay, if you're serious about this, then we got to do something. we got to get rid of the distractions in our lives that are keeping us from following God. So look at what happens next in 2 Kings 23, verse 4. The king, this is Josiah, ordered Hilkiah, the high priest, the priest next in rank, and the doorkeepers to remove from the temple of the Lord all the articles made for Baal and Asherah, those are false gods, by the way, idols, and all the starry hosts, which they also worshipped. He burned them outside Jerusalem in the fields of the Kidron Valley and took the ashes to Bethel. 
So what does Josiah do? He says, listen, if we're really going to do this, if we're really going to live for God in an intentional way, then what we need to do is get rid of all the distractions, all those things that are keeping us from following God. So so Josiah realizes that the biggest distraction that people have in this day were idols, false gods. And he doesn't just get rid of them. He says he burns them to ashes. He grinds them into dust. He destroys them. He demolishes them. As long as he just takes these idols and puts them in a back closet in the temple somewhere, I mean, he gets rid of them. They are gone forever because he knew these things were standing in the way of God's people following God. And so Josiah teaches teaches us here in this moment, you can't live intentionally for God until you deal with the distractions that keep you from God. Now, I get it. As we read a passage like this from the Old Testament about false gods and statues and idols, I get it. We think, well, yeah, but that's not what we struggle with today. I mean, we don't, I don't know anybody that bows down and worships a statue. We don't struggle with that today. But I'm here to say, idolatry was a problem in the Bible, and it's still a problem today. In fact, I dare say, idolatry was the biggest sin issue in the Bible, and it's still the biggest sin issue problem today. Because an idol isn't just a statue, a physical statue you bow down and worship. An idol is anything or anyone that serves as God's competition. Anyone or anything that serves as God's competition. And I dare say that God probably has more competition today than he ever has. I mean, we may not bow down and worship statues or carry little statues around with us as good luck charms or anything like that that take up our attention, but we do carry these things around a lot, don't we? little screens I dare say we probably spend more time with our screens than we do with anything or anyone else don't we these things control us at times oh we may not worship mythical creatures or warriors or demigods but we sure do idolize celebrities and athletes even political figures musicians Oh, we may not participate in temple prostitution like they were doing before the reign of Josiah. But don't we chase after unhealthy sexual practices as a God? Yeah, you bet we do. And for that matter, we, um, we may not worship kings as gods. But we put way too much hope sometimes in human political parties and agendas. And we forget who's really on the throne, who's really king. I think God has more competition today than he ever has. And you name it, whether it's the God of cultural pressure or the God of popular opinion or the God of success or sports or accomplishments, the God of romantic relationships, the God of money, the God of stuff, you name it, God has a whole lot of competition. And Josiah knew if his people were going to live for God on purpose, they had to deal with those distractions. And it's interesting to me that once Josiah renews the covenant, the people immediately respond and they want to renew the covenant as well. I mean, that's pretty quick, you know? You would think they, well, let's think about this. Let's, you know, let's talk about this. But they don't. It's almost immediate. And I think I know why. Because this wasn't the first time they were hearing this. See, prior to Josiah coming to coming to follow God again, coming to that point where he followed God again, God had been laying the groundwork for the people to repent. God had been sending out prophets or preachers all throughout the land to try to get the people to turn back to him. One of those prophets or preachers was a guy named 
Jeremiah, not of bullfrog fame, but Jeremiah, the prophet. And Jeremiah was preaching during the season when Josiah first became king in the early days of his reign. And you know what Jeremiah was preaching on the streets before Josiah ever found God? You know what he was preaching on the streets? He was preaching this. Look what Jeremiah 2.13 says. My people, he's speaking on behalf of God here. God is saying, my people have committed two sins. They have forsaken me, the spring of living water, and have dug their own cisterns, broken cisterns that cannot hold water. What's, what's he talking about here? We see they lived in a desert region and only rained about half the year. And so you went through seasons with very little rainfall. And so they developed this system to help collect water. They built these cisterns in the ground or wells, basically. Cisterns were wells that were coated with like brick and tar and clay to help hold water. And it wasn't a great system because these cisterns, they would crack and they would break. And you had to repair them or dig new ones. And even those that held water for any amount of time, the water would become stale and stagnant over time and this was a lot of work to keep digging these cisterns in this desert region and so these people would have understood this illustration this analogy really well no one would take the time to continue to build these cisterns these broken cisterns in the ground if there was a spring of living water continuous water that could sustain them and nourish them and what God here is saying to the people is I'm right in front of you you're thirsty, your souls are thirsty, and I'm here to quench that thirst. I'm here to give you what you're longing for. I'm here to give you what your soul needs. And I'm the only one that can give it to you. I'm here to provide for you and take care of you and give you the life that you were created to live. I am a spring of living water right in front of you. And what are you doing? You keep digging cisterns that won't hold water. You keep working so hard to find something that isn't there. You keep digging wells that leave you feeling empty. And let me ask you, what cisterns have you been digging? Because what Jeremiah and Josiah are trying to teach us is this. Don't give your ultimate love to anything you can ultimately lose. There's nothing wrong with having money. Having money in, in and of itself is not a sin. But don't give your ultimate love to money that's here one day and gone the next. There's nothing wrong with having stuff, but don't give your ultimate love to stuff. There's nothing wrong with having relationships. I mean, God, if you're married, God wants you to be faithful to your spouse and love them. But don't turn your spouse into your God. If you've got kids, God wants you to take care of those kids and provide for them and invest them. But don't turn your kids into your God. And I think what COVID-19 has done is it has exposed a ton of false gods that we've been worshiping. Whether it's the God of the economy or the God of government or the God of political systems or the God of science or the God of our freedoms, when those things are all taken away or they fail, we realize they may all be good things, but they're lousy gods And I think God is using this moment to wake us up and say, I'm, I'm spring of living water right in front of you. And you're digging wells, you're digging cisterns that'll never hold water. 
It wouldn't be, it wouldn't be a shame if we got past this pandemic and we went right back to the old broken cisterns that we've been digging all along. See, that's what Jeremiah is trying to teach the people, and that's what Josiah is trying to let the people know. We've got to deal with these distractions and make sure that they're not keeping us from following the God who wants to provide and take care of us and give us the life that he created us to live. And if you're struggling right now to figure out, well, I don't know what false God I've been chasing, let me ask you to do something. Just follow the trail of your fear because whatever you're afraid to let go of in life is probably your God. Let me put it this way. The fear you can't let go often reveals a false God in your life. If you're afraid to live without something, if you're afraid to let go of something, it might just be the God that you're chasing after. And as scary as it might be to let go of whatever that is because it brings you comfort or it's an escape or maybe it gives you some sense of identity, as scary as it might be to let it go, that very thing might be what's enslaving you right now. So Jeremiah says, we got to get rid of all this stuff. And the people, they had found comfort in these false gods, these idols for years. He says, we got to destroy them. we got to get rid of them. And the people listen to him. And so they do. They get rid of all the idols, all the altars to these false gods throughout the entire land. They destroy them all. And you know what they do after that? They celebrate the Passover. The Passover was the biggest religious celebration laid out for them in the Old Testament law. And they celebrate the Passover to God. And this is what 2 Chronicles 35 says. It says, the Passover had not been observed like this in Israel since the days of the prophet Samuel. That's back when David was anointed king. And none of the kings of Israel had ever celebrated such a Passover as did Josiah. You know what happened when they got rid of all the distractions, all the idols? They celebrated. They partied. And in this land that was full of misery and sadness and chaos, the joy of heaven invaded it. In that moment, people were celebrating. You know why? Because God was at the center of their kingdom again. They had purpose, they had meaning for life, and they had joy that far surpassed anything that this world could offer them. And here's the thing. When we get rid of our distractions and we focus on God and we don't turn to the right or to the left, but we are intentional about living for Him, when we make Him the sin of our lives, the joy of heaven will invade the sadness of our hearts. And that joy will overflow from us to others so that... We will have joy in our personal lives, in our homes, in our communities, in our world. And I believe that's why the church is here, to invade the sadness of this land, to invade the sadness of our world with the joy of heaven. We're here to unleash a revolution of God's love on the 918 and beyond. Those aren't just words. That's why we're here. And if we're going to do that, we've got to be intentional about it. It's not going to happen by accident. It's not going to happen by just showing up to services on a Sunday or worshiping from your living room at home. It's not going to happen just by participating in this hour time we have. It's going to happen when we intentionally live out the mission that God has given us. And that's why we issued at the beginning of the series our COVID challenge to do one of these things or more. Remember the last one is dream of your own act of love, but do some act of kindness. Do some act of love in Jesus' name 
to counteract all the documented cases of COVID-19 that are in our surrounding area. And when we started this series, there were 2,535 documented cases of COVID-19. And we challenge you guys to go and do these acts of kindness and to document those. You know how many we have as of today? Just under 600. Which is good. But we're not there yet. And we still have one week. If we're going to do three full weeks, we got this week. Guys, we can do this. If just everyone who participates in the service did two acts of kindness this week, we could blow that number out of the water. We can do this. Now, I know some of you have said, hey, I did my act of kindness, but I forgot to document it. Well, get on a document so we have a record of it, and it's going to stay anonymous. You don't have to worry about that. We're not trying to get credit for this or anything. We just want to be able to say that we match the sadness that's out there with joy. So this week, today, get out and do some act of kindness And let's spread joy in the midst of all this sadness because that's what we're here to do. Guys, we can say we're going to love like Jesus. We can wear the T-shirt, but it's never actually going to make a difference unless we're intentional about it. Let's go out and bring the joy of heaven to the sadness of earth. Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you so much for today, for this time that we've had to open up your word and study it. And I pray that we will be a people who don't just talk about loving like your son, but we will be a people who actually do it on a daily basis. I pray for this COVID challenge. I pray that our church will respond this week in a big way. And we will reverse all the suffering and pain with acts of kindness and joy. So I pray that we do that this week in a powerful way. We blow that number out of the water, that 2,500 number out of the water. But I also pray if there's anybody here that's been chasing after idols, chasing after distractions, chasing after broken cisterns, that, Father, we would come to you, the spring of living water. In the name of Jesus, I pray, amen.